Welcome to another episode of the podcast series, Readings and Conversations, brought to you by the Centre for Literatures in Canada at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, with support from the Canada Council for the Arts. Known to many as a Miskwachi Wiskagan, Edmonton is located on Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta. This podcast brings together three authors from diverse backgrounds and parts of the country to read and converse on the topic of fire. Leading this conversation is Alice Major, whose 12th poetry collection, Knife on Snow, addresses some of the biggest issues facing us today, including ecological crisis, conflict, and anger. The first section of her collection, A Fate for Fire, explores climate change, colonization, and the wildfire that hit Fort McMurray in 2016. This book continues along interest in science that has informed Major's work from the beginning. Major's poetry has earned her several awards, including the Lieutenant Governor of Alberta Distinguished Artist Award and an honorary doctorate from the University of Alberta. Major is also a tireless and generous community builder who has served as chair of the Edmonton Arts Council, president of the Writers Guild of Alberta, founder of the Edmonton Poetry Festival, and the first poet laureate of Edmonton. Major is joined by Dr. Michelle Porter, a writer and scholar from Alberta currently living in Newfoundland and Labrador. Porter is the descendant of a long line of Métis storytellers. Many of her ancestors, in particular the Goulet family, told stories using music. Today, Porter tells stories using the written word. The author of Approaching Fire and the memoir Scratching River, Porter also recently published her first novel, A Grandmother Begins the Story, which was a finalist for the Atwood Gibson Writers' Trust Award for Fiction in 2023. Her first book of poetry, Inquiries, was shortlisted for the Pat Lowther Memorial Award for Best Book of Poetry and a finalist for the E.J. Pratt Poetry Award in 2021. Joining Major and Porter is Hari Aluri, a migrant poet of Philippine and South Asian descent, living, writing, and working on unceded Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, and the Kwantlen, Katsi, and Kwikwetlam lands of the Hunkaminam-speaking peoples. Author of The Flayed City, the chapbook Our Echo of Sudden Mercy, and forthcoming from Brick Books in 2025, Like a Feather Holds the Sky, he is a co-founding editor at Lockhorn Press, a workshop facilitator, and a bookseller at Massey Books. Aluri's award-winning work can be found in journals, anthologies, and online. In this podcast, Major, Porter, and Aluri come together to offer moving readings and inspiring conversation about the imaginative paths that help us all to navigate fire, an increasingly powerful element in our shared world. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast, which is one of the events organized by the Centre for Canadian Literatures. My name is Alice Major, and I'm looking forward to this conversation with Michelle Porter and Hari Aluri about writing and fire. 
So fire is one of the most familiar chemical processes for humans. We've lived with it and made use of it throughout our history. It's a multidimensional phenomenon. It brings danger and destruction. And yet we coexist comfortably with it every day in our controlled furnaces and internal combustion engines. So it also looms very large in our conceptual frameworks. In our mythologies, it's often one of the apocalyptic scenarios, a, a world destroyed in fire, Ragnarok and Inferno. But fire is also seen as a creative gift brought to humans by various divine or spiritual beings. And we use it all the time figuratively to talk about emotions, love and romance, the, the hot stuff and the old flames, or anger, the rage that burns. So fire becomes both a literal subject and a metaphorical framework for art and artists. And that's kind of what we're going to explore in our conversation today. But for now, let's get to know the writers that you've tuned into. And to do that, each of us will be reading briefly and then talk about how that excerpt relates to the longer work that it comes from. And I'd like to start with Michelle Porter, who is joining us from Newfoundland this afternoon. Michelle, do you want to begin your sharing? Sure. Thank you very much for having me here. I'll be reading um, from my book, Approaching Fire. Um, it's a book uh, that follows uh, my great-grandfather and my grandmother um, as they uh, make traditional Métis music on, on the prairies and then move on off to BC. Seems like the world's on fire, like the world is just burning itself up. Music can leap through generations like fire leaps a road, can't it? Make itself heard in the cellular activity of the body of the woman who is standing in her mother's cousin's kitchen near Mission, the year British Columbia declared a state of emergency. It's because of all the burning that didn't happen before and because of all the fires that were suppressed, this music will be felt in the body of the woman in her kitchen, in her own house in Newfoundland and Labrador for years after. The smoke from those fires traveled, filled the skies from the west coast to Saskatchewan and even further east, they say. When British Columbia burned, smoke made twilight out of day. In the pictures I saw, I thought how it could have been fog, like the clouds that come down to the rocks in Newfoundland and Labrador, where I make my home. But the clouds in the pictures billowed up from the ground, stalked by scathing heat and licking flame. Standing in my great aunt's kitchen, just a few weeks after the state of emergency lifted, I held in my hands the old brittle records, 78s coated with shellac resin. The record covers bare handwritten notes, the names of my great-grandfather and his two daughters, Leon Robert Goulet, Elise and Estelle Rose Goulet, Olive Elise Goulet. Seems like the world's on fire, like the world's burning itself up. I read an article in an online science magazine that tells about the day in 2013 when scientist Kira Hoffman spotted something unusual, sort of a grammatical inconsistency in the rainforest in BC. 
she noticed an old fire-scarred western red cedar in a place fires weren't supposed to burn. Fire isn't supposed to be part of the forest in some places. So much rain falls on the west coast that fires are supposed to play only a minor ecological role in some regions. But there was that fire-scarred tree Kira Hoffman saw in the hyper-maritime zone on Hecate Island, named after the Greek goddess of magic. That tree haunted her, she told the magazine writer who called to talk about her research for an article. It told a story that wasn't straight. When did this fire burn? Kira Hoffman asked that question, and she changed the focus of her studies from soil ecology to fire ecology. So in these, in these two sections, I uh, make the link. We can talk more about this as we have a discussion, but I read those two sections because the, the fires that, that um, are at the center of approaching fire um, come from family, um, come from family music, intergenerational trauma, as well as the fires that are happening currently in different, uh, had been happening at the time of the writing in different places in Canada. Um, and um, I build in uh, emotional fires, um, fires that are happening as a result of being at the end of intergenerational trauma. So, all, and, and, and reading stories about fire helped me figure out how to walk through that. Thank you so much, Michelle. Um, I could you just talk a little bit more? I was really I love your book and I was really intrigued by how you came to the the whole braiding of fire and music the and and all the other things. Did you start out with fire and add family or did it go the other way around? Yeah, oh, so where did where did the first fire come from? Which is an important question because <laughs> fire the fire began with an old family story. Um, about um, uh, division in the family and about um, racism, really. Um, my grandfather and um, grandmother, my grandmother was was born um, at a time when my when a grandfather was uh, traveling around the prairies um, with a band called the Red River Echoes. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and she was just born into this music and into this, into this traditional Métis music with the fiddle and the jigs and the crooked tunes, all this beautiful music. So there's a, there's a couple of things that come in there, but there's this story that, that, that my mother would tell, uh, when she talked a lot about, um, growing up in BC. So at some point, my grandfather decided that, uh, Manitoba was, um, uh, there was so much discrimination against Métis. He wanted to try BC. Would it be a better place for his daughters? Whether it was or not is a totally different book. But <laughs> um, So they moved to BC in the 30s. Um, and at that time, um, while he was proud of the Métis identity and proud of, um, he's a, a Goulet, well-known political family, comes from some of the earliest politicians, the uh, resistance, the Métis resistance on the prairies. But some members of that family at that time who could pass as, as not Indigenous and as, as white didn't want the heritage to be known broadly because of some of the racism, uh, because of all the racism that, that, that Métis people faced at the time, lack of access to schooling, lack of access to jobs, um, et cetera, et cetera. It, it could go on, but 
Um, so in, in part of the story, part of the story detailed here is the story of um, an aunt of my mother's coming to the house and taking everything, all the pictures she could find, a lot of the documents she could find, fiddles and old, old fiddles, beautiful fills been passed on for generations and making a fire and burning as much as she could. So that to me, <laughs> I can get a little bit emotional as I, as I talk about it. Um, it's, it's that fire that that's the center of that, that intergenerational trauma, that, um, that, that, uh, that inability to accept who you are and that, that um, trying to hide that, that hiding that some Métis people wanted to do um, and, and some Métis people had to do, were forced into. And that in my family, there were family members who had wanted to hide even while, um, you know, even while my grandfather and, and great-grandfather and grandmother and, and my mother, we passed down this whole pride in, in who we were. Um, and and that fire for me began began it all, um, that, that fire in, in, in my mind and as I, began to come to a story about my about my great grandfather and grandmother and and the people that I come from um I had to tell I had to bring that fire to it um and and I combined that with an old story about the music um you know Métis belief an old Métis belief about the um uh, if you play at a certain tune if you play the fiddle at a certain tune at a certain speed the devil will come and take you up <laughs> Now, because of course, many may either had that strong Catholic, uh, that Catholic strain. Now, now, by the time I I was growing up, um, and my grandmother rejected, turned away from all that. But there's that 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 belief in the music. So those those are that's the first fire that got me thinking about um, uh, about about fire metaphorically. You know, the 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 fire that would would come and um, create all sorts of dysfunction and pain in the family. Um, and, you know, how do you, my, my question really began, how do you work with fire? Because the fire's there. How do you work with fire in your family, but also on the land? So of course, all the healing has to happen in conjunction with, with the land. So, um, and then as soon as you start looking, I turned around and everywhere I looked, there was, there was that, that there was fire and, teachings and learnings about fire. It is a riveting image uh, that, that you start the book off and that, that comes again close to the end, the, the idea that you can, you want to burn, that somebody wanted to burn the past. And of course, how do you keep the past alive? Uh, how do you keep the fuse going? Thank you so much, Michelle. That was wonderful. Um, now I'm going to turn to, to Hari and ask you to read from your work that are, are you reading from the flayed city thank you so much alice i'll be reading from a couple of different uh sources wonderful uh, uh, michelle wow thank you so much for for sharing that and i find it similar to alice so powerful that you take this <clears throat> fire of burning of attempting to erase as like uh, the heart of rekindling and um, it makes me emotional as well. Um, just a couple of lines from you, Michelle. All the burning that didn't happen before. Smoke made twilight out of day. 
just the way your images, memory, detail, and music work together, not just the speaking about music, but the music itself. Um, so thank you. I'm going to uh, begin like two or three times um, right now because of some uh, literal fire in the world. Um, I want to begin with a very small uh, moment from Mahmoud Darwish, translated by Fadi Judah, uh, from the book, If I Were Another. Uh, for the folks who are um, in conversation with me, you can see the cover. Um, you can see that I borrowed it from the library. I apologize to all the folks in Vancouver. Um, pretty much every uh, Palestinian poet's uh, work is at my house right now, if you were looking for it at the library. So... This is an excerpt from a long poem called The Tragedy of Narcissus, The Comedy of Silver. And I found this um, moment by look, doing the numerology of today, um, which added up to 20. Um, I'm gonna open with something from Darwish and then I'm gonna read about the numerology of today and how it connected to uh, our conversation. And then I'm gonna Our country is that we become its country, its vegetation, its birds, its inanimate things. And our country is our birth, our grandfathers, our grandchildren, our livers walking upon untaba or grouse feathers. And our country is that make offense of violence for its fires and ashes. And then from the Kapwa Tarot by uh, Janalyn Umipig, a uh, Philippinex creator and a facilitator, uh, her note about the element of fire or apple. The rattan reminds us of the power of purpose and passion of the spirit. Each of these cards has us reflect on what inspires us, what moves us in the world, on the parts of ourselves that will creation. The fire of the Ratan is asking us to listen to the desires inside of us and let them light the way. This suit influences action and movement and has us root in the meaning and purpose of our lives. Just thought there was a nice connection between all that and the introduction of this as well. From the Flayed City, with apologies <clears throat> because I'm going to be swearing in this one. Every visit, Auntie would tell how she re-bambooed the chairs since we'd been back. And in those moments, I was afraid. She was a mountain wearing rocks, how ritual wears fire pit. She was a midnight rooster shouting down dogs. The dogs were what scared me, the regiment and their barking. It clung. I love dirt too. People who question the nation because of what train tracks betray. I have smile nodded at a flag, recognizing the gentle sway, the violence I fear most. My auntie once clapped the table, I won't kiss any dog fuck flag, then went straight back to cheating me at cards. Up my spine, the calling of chapped electric wire. Its flame brushes an alley's crouch where it meets the road. 
the song of that crouch, its only note, caroms unheard around my dome, troubles my forehead. The ceiling fan's limping arm changes the shapes of my old ghosts. And then from an unpublished manuscript um, called Like uh, like a Feather Holds the Sky, which actually will be coming out from uh, Brick Books in 2025. Spiral. What seeps in me from weeks of rain, making me forget the life give part in water? The world this morning reminds me too much of my insides that night I almost abandoned the balcony. Three pages deep of furious language, scratching worry into my journal before I can say, please let me stop. Notice on the outside table, this jagged bouquet tobacco seeds dried, still attached to the cut few inches of their last year stalks, wrinkled fire in a mini vase. It doesn't look much like promise, but it is. And Ashley, I wouldn't mind uh, if you all wanted to give me, Ashley, I was like, do you want to hear a poem about lightning? Or... Uh -huh. From our Echo of Sudden Mercy. I am right there for lightning. Okay. This is uh, Dragon Shoots Its Whispers. Um, epigraph, quotation. Lightning is a pure expression of fire bending without aggression. It is not fueled by rage or emotion the way other fire bending is. Some call lightning the cold-blooded fire. In the voice of Uncle Iroh, spoken to Zuko, from season two, episode nine, bitter work of Avatar, The Last Airbender. One of my major influences for me. Rustling leaves, the energy you gather sways to call me in when you say bend. I matchstick into being because I want to disappear. My entire existence of flinching to escape forces that shape me. My need cathedrals up the air. Muscle it, halt the charge in you. The finger you point me with, sweeten it with blame you no longer encumber. Embrace me, exaltation. Healing means I exit. Shadow, clap when you say bend. Remittance I've been breathing since before breathing since before I knew a name for anything but love. I'm Wraith. Embrace me the distance I cannot abide. Call mercy, filament of exile. Fear the repair I bring. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. That is that is really wonderful work. Um, and. Uh, I love The Flayed City as well. That's a, it's an amazing book. And so I'm certainly going to look forward to the, the new one coming out. That's from Brit Books, did you say? Ooh. Great. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited for it. But one of the things I'm, I'm really fascinated by in how you, you construct poems, um, and I was thinking of fire, you know, uh, the, the metaphor of which fire is essentially a 
process of combining elements and creating new ones, which seemed like a, a, a perfect metaphor in a sense for what you do, because you do call on so many other writers as inspiration and and you to make new things out of out of uh, what's been done before. Did you want to talk about your process in that a bit? Because I find it really interesting. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for noticing that as well. Um, I think to sort of speak in terms of inspiration, I think a lot of it has to do with coming from many languages that I don't necessarily have access to. You know, between my parents, they casually speak nine languages, um, both locally and internationally to, to where they're from. My mom from the Philippines, uh, Pangasinan and Ilocano, speaks Tagalog as well, um, was still in the, the the era when they still taught university all up the way in um, Spanish, all the way up to university. You know, my dad, Telugu, speaks like Canada next door. Tamil has family there. Hindi knows some Urdu from school as well. And like, you know, and then both of them speak enough English to be in love with each other in English, you know, um, you know, and to raise their children in English and, um, you know, partially so as not to have uh, conflicts separating them. You know, they they held English as a primary language uh, between in, in the family, you know. Uh, which is both like a gift of love to each other and um, part of our loss, my sister and myself, in terms of language. Um, but we were already diasporic, so we did not have direct access anymore. Um, and then there's languages. Of, I was born uh, in Obomosho, Nigeria, and there's the languages of that region, Yoruba and Yubo, as well as like a form of pidgin that like is is part of me. And then coming to um, arriving, beginning to arrive on Coast Salish territories and in 1990 and like having this relationship to hip-hop and music um and like the way that that is a combination of older musics <clears throat> and then really like um when it comes to poetry i just i do want to say that i have this uh particular um vulnerability to poems that are in translation um and i am vulnerable to the failures of those poems um and in those the space of like the failure of translation is actually where I feel like there's the most space for me to exist in a mm -hmm. poem. <clears throat> and I'm uh, I'm hopeful that like that that kind of happens in my process is this kind of like failure of translation of so many different sources that I'm always vulnerable to. Um, I'm really working on trying to think this through, so forgive me, it's not quite there yet. But like the way I'm thinking about it is that like I am vulnerable to the grammars around me and I want, not even want, that I have, um, and and so those multiple types of fire or those multiple elements being at work uh, when I'm working um, uh, are at play. And so with the Flayed City, I, I did specifically meditate on so much that I was reading and tried my best to respond to it and tried my best to fail it like to fail those other writers into my own language um and so that's that's part of how that work works and so it continues to be part of how i do it and our echo of sudden mercy works similarly to that as well yeah. meditating on one single poem um and then like being 
like moved by all this other work. It's like in poetry, in nonfiction, sociology and history comes into it and music um, over and over and over. I find this fascinating, Harry, the, the, the way that, um, and, and I'm going back to the metaphor of fire, you know, the, 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 the destruction and creation that is, is part of the, the process of fire uh, for good and sometimes for and a lot of time for ill as well. But, but to internalize that as a writer in a way is, is just, it's really good. I like it. Um, okay, so uh, actually, I'm the third one who's going to read uh, briefly here. Um, thank you so much for your contributions. I'm just going to read um, a, the first section from my poem, which is called A Fate for Fire, and it, which opens my newest book and called Knife on Snow. And this section was based on a drive I had to make in 2017 from Edmonton all the way to Saskatoon, which meant six hours of driving. And that entire distance was under a pall of wildfire smoke. It was the most surreal experience, but it's a phenomenon that we're becoming more and more familiar with in Western Canada. So there's a quote that opens the poem and it's from Beowulf, which is one of the oldest poems in the world that in, in what would become the English language. Um, and so here we go. A fate for fire. Once more a monster moved through the night, a raging flame dragon ruled in darkness, fire grim guardian of a great treasure mound, Beowulf. Dawn came then, dark dragged its gray tail from sky's flat surface, and citizens woke to no blue summer. Their burning eyes opened on orange, an awful light, fire breath blown from boreal blazing to west and north, Wildfires ignited. On fume-drugged highways, a car drives on. Hours it has passed under this pall, flanked by fields, enfolded in hills. High overhead, on heaven's wide hill, the sun walks its way westward, but its light casts no shadows. A lurid lens Smoke filter saps color, though green remains of a recent glow, weird, intense, world end light. This haze comes harried over high mountains from swaths of forest, scorched terrains. Another year, the annual battle, like the dragon disturbed in its treasure den that finds itself robbed and ravages forth again and again, unending rage. Now forests flare season after season in summer heats as continents consume themselves. The driver drives on through day-long dusk, 
remote from here across the Rockies, crews hack clearings in cruel heat. Trees are torches, terrible angels, crests of flame. This is crown fire, fastest, most fierce. Flames leap dangerous distances, devour timber. Bale fire, beast fanged, consumes creatures. Their corpses lie, chase victims, charred in smoke. Moose, mule deer, pine marten, bison. No creature outruns such enormity. And I just wanted to mention the sound of that poem. Uh, it, I did base it on the alliterative verse that was used for Beowulf. Um, and the, the, the thinking behind this is because the, the boreal forest that has been burning so violently in northern Canada, especially the West, is a circumpolar biome. It, it's not just Canada, it's all the way through Scandinavia, Russia, Siberia. And it's enormously important from the point of view of the global environment, because it, it among other things, it stores more carbon than the world's temperate and tropical forests combined. So we've always thought it's up there. Uh, it doesn't matter that much if a few more hectares burn, but it is becoming a very significant problem in, in uh, climate crisis and global warming. So that was my contribution to, to our, uh, our readings, just so that now that you've heard all our voices, um, Let's let's talk a little bit more. So uh, fire is a daily part of all cultures, but Harry and, and Michelle, can you talk about what it means in your own? Because obviously that's very much part of what you're writing is, is, is kind of to bring in your cultures, um, the Métis and the and the extremely tangled one that you have, Harry. So okay. Who's going to go first? Leap in. <laughs> Michelle? I'll step up and just speak about, um, speak a little bit, starting with um, an ancestor from the late 1800s. Um, we have the enormous privilege of some early folklorists having encountered him as an old man, Louis Goulet, um, and uh, having recorded, written down and turned into a book in French, because of course he spoke French mischief back then, not English. Um, and then having that book translated into a book my auntie <laughs> told me to go read. And around the time I was writing this book and it's called Vanishing Spaces. In this book, he's, he, he speaks about, so it's the recording of his oral telling. He speaks about growing up on the prairies uh, following the bison hunt. So traditionally we get through that, we get uh, a sense of what fire was was to them and to him. And uh, one thing, first, of course, is that that fire as as um, something um, as as a being that you um, are in relationship with, and in the, in many ways, this comes through just in the knowledge knowledge of the fire, knowledge how knowledge of watching for the smoke in the distance, knowledge of where to go, what to do, how to how to uh, set yourselves when a fire is approaching. Because uh, a fire traveling across the prairies comes 
really quick. <laughs> and uh, you have to keep your eye on where the sloughs are, where the bodies of water, and um, um, keep an eye on the behavior of the animals. You can tell how far away it was um, according to the behavior of some of the animals. You can tell um, uh, by, by the way the smoke is billowing, which way it might go. Um, and and uh, the, the the leaders of the hunt will would have uh, traveled out to find out more information and help direct where they go. Now, when the fire comes, there's this dramatic, dramatic, deep uh, description of uh, this fire jumping right over them. And uh, um, it's only an oral storyteller <laughs> can, can, can pull that off. So it was beautiful. Um, there's that side of it, that side of, of just knowing it so that it's uh, knowing, managing the danger of it. Um, from from that perspective as well, it's the other side of it is that regeneration that happens. So where a fire has been, the buffalo will come next year. <laughs> so you know you can go, you can find your food source. And if the fire doesn't come, the buffalo won't come. Uh -huh. So um, that speaks like so. So um, a part of the book, I I I retell a little bit of his oral history, but I. I juxtapose it with um, just very short prose poetry and I tell about um, um, uh, comparing his, you know, some of the smoke, the haze, the trying to figure it out with me negotiating the other end of intergenerational trauma. And uh, so I pull those two things together and have turned to the ancestors and to their descriptions of um, essentially not being afraid of fire, not trying to stop it, not trying to suppress it letting it burn and and knowing that that will, that, that will be the other side it will leap over um and that that's one approach to the mental emotional spiritual healing um and and to know that that regeneration will also come on the other end should we treat fires in that healthy way in that way where uh you know because of course Traditionally, most of the areas we think of as non, as empty places were very well taken care of with regular seasons of fire, regular uh, planned fires. And that's what within Métis uh, history as well. So for me, looking at that traditional living with fire and, 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 and not a suppression of fire, but it, uh, allowing the fire to burn and even starting fires in places where they wanted that regrowth that renewal in certain times was part of taking care of the land but also similarly i think as human beings we are we previous generations have had to suppress so much of the pain that they have had they've suffered as a result of colonialism as a result of um the denigration of the land um uh, loss of land, loss of home, um, all of those things, um, and, and a lot of the instability that can come with that. And it's my generation who bears that responsibility of letting that fire burn um, so that that next generation can come on up. And ah. that's that's that was the key learning for me as I as I wrote that book, uh, as I wrote this book and, and began to pull from the past and look toward that future so Harry what does what do you have to say about what fire is I love um I love this kind of I love this relationship to the to the balancing power of fire just thank you so much for sharing about this the living with fire piece 
<clears throat> both like environmentally and in terms of as an act of care to like live with fire as an act of care. And when we're talking about large fires, you know, it's easy to live with fire as an act of care when you're cooking your meals, but yeah. <laughs> fire as an act of care and like, um, um, in full recognition of its full power and strength, you know, like to think of that as like, like you said, as a being, um, and then just to echo as well, what you were saying about the opposite of suppression, um, about the, like this moment and to kind of juxtapose, like to, to understand the importance of rage in moments, uh, in ongoing moments that we're in. <clears throat> and so much of what like, um, of, of like writers of the generation just before me and then reminders from like writers of the generation after me, maybe more so just because of like them being in that youthful age of, of like full emotionality, all the, you know, um, reminding me of the time when I was in that uh, and, you know, and reminding me how to return to it when it's necessary. So thank you for, 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 for that reminder and not just reminder but teaching um i'm thinking about thinking about how fire has always been um enacted like as a burning in order to clear and cleanse and i'm thinking about in the philippines is as guava you know yes. and there's so many different um so many different uh relationships to uh to fire and like the billion person south asian subcontinent um and one of the ones that is closest to me um there's a lot of complications around the around uh the bindi and like there's violence around the bindi in terms of caste you know um the part that i uh connect in terms of both of my um parents cultures my mom being from, from the philippines and having that catholic background as well um the the imposition of ashes um uh as a practice re reminds me of the way that um fire ash from sacred fire is what we kind of like uh touch ourselves with as a reminder um as an, as something to carry with us into our days you know and my father gave me this like just like it's a little vial um literally of ash that he brought that from a from from a ritual that he he attended and um he was like this is your vial of ash and like when you need it you have this ash to like touch to yourself and so it's always been something really important to me. i want to also recognize you know like in terms of that balance um there's like care with fire and like the and like the um seasonal act of burning you know and then we've also got um these acts of burning in order to make space for city you know that is like that is to that is acts of suppressing the land as opposed to relating to the land and one of the oldest stories that i know of like one you know in the Mahabharata, which is um um one of the one of the most well-known world epics um one of the stories that troubles me is a story in which um agni the, <clears throat> the <clears throat> excuse me yeah. agni the deity uh embodiment of fire 
is like exhausted from all the ghee that these like Brahmins have been uh, placing for this long, long ritual that uh, that has Agni feeling like exhausted and needing and, and suppressed by that and needing to burn out. And so mm -hmm. that part I feel connects like to like an, to an indigenous understanding of fire. And then it gets kind of taken up in this myth where where um, he talks to Krishna and Arjuna, who are like heroes in this epic. And I have heroes in air quotes because I have multiple relationships to them, moments where I'm in love with them, trickster versions of Krishna, and moments where I feel um, a lot of harm comes from those two so-called heroes. In this case, they like essentially displace all the um, citizens of this jungle for Agni to be able to burn. Um, and then, and by displace, I mean, they, they fight the so-called demons and the like snake people and the bear people and like the indigenous folks of the land. And then, and then on that site, a beautiful palace is built, you know? And so mm -hmm. I've got, and so I feel this like, and the building of that palace is supposed to be this beautiful moment. And at the same time, which in relationship to, to the story might be so, but in relationship to my relationship to jungle or my relationship to land or my relationship to how I want to think of land, I feel like a deep harm in that. So I just want to like think about the multiple ways that that single story carries, you know, over, over, like over harming the fire or, or like overloading the fire with the ghee causes it to need to burn or causes him or them to need to burn in this like way that you've described Michelle perhaps or like akin to this way you've described and then at the same time you've got this other like like instead of cleansing relationship like a clearing of land to make way for a city which can be it can be like in the you know I'm also fascinated by how stories can be so multidimensional themselves that they, they contain all these different threads and emotional resonances. Um, and that one is not one I was familiar with, Hari, but obviously I'm going to have to go and look up Agni and, uh, and that whole section of the epic. Absolutely. So, It'll, you'll find it in multiple places for sure. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you so much for that. That's illuminating as fire should be. Um, I'm. Can I ask about the ash a little bit? I was. I love. To... Yes, please. I, love that. I don't know that much. Of, like I don't know the origins of it, you know, mm -hmm. but I know that uh, my 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 pops holds it as sacred, and I know that he has attended. Um, uh, like attended ceremonies in which like uh and again this shows exactly how little i know in which something sacred is burnt and oh. the ash I, it might you know it might be as simple as sandalwood because it's like the ash itself is like a fragrant beautiful ash that he's that oh. he's getting you know um it, it, it made me think of the plants or the seeds 
that only grow in ash. So maybe, I mean, there could be something about, you know, that there's a certain growth that only happens in that ash. I was just looking for which one it is, but I can't, I can't quite find it at the moment. Yeah, that's yeah. actually. One of the things I find fascinating, sorry, Hari, is that in, in, you know, my growing up Anglican kind of tradition, Ash Wednesday was when the, 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 the material, the, the, the palm crosses that you got in Sunday school on, on uh, Palm Sunday were burned and our foreheads were marked for the day with that, um, uh, with the ash. And my impression was that was to make us feel sad and to make us feel as though we were sinful and as though we were, uh, it didn't really give us the sense that um, we were protected or that we were participating in something healing, which it sounds as though you're you're talking about. Um, I mean, I was just remembering those uh, that 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 moment. I was thinking about Ash Wednesday, I think. Oh, uh-huh. Okay. Um, and I'm thinking, so I was, you know, I literally looked it up and I was thinking about Ash and it's um, uh, one of the, the purposes of uh, this, uh, of this Ash is to remind us of the temporary uh, nature of the material world, you know, uh, and fire yes. does, that, does that, does that remind yeah. us, you know. Um, and let me know, I, I, I do have a, <clears throat> we all end up with favorites when, when you come from like multi, especially in Furinea, if you come from like three different pantheons, you end up with favorite deities, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and like, you know, the, especially the Shiva Parv- Parvati, like multiple, who's like multiply gendered um, and like the, the dancing of creation, uh, you know, to to have creation be a dance is beautiful to me. Um, and also to think about, like, because Shiva is both creator and destroyer, and then to have this, like, um, uh, act of uh, placing ash on our foreheads as a reminder of that, I think is yeah. one thing I do, I, I will say, like, I have as a favor, you know? Yeah. I think uh, one of the between the the fire that was positive and the fire that maybe resulted in the laying down of a city, so um, you know the, the the thing struck me as I was doing my own research and and that I still keep in mind and I have that me- the fire biological reality and the the emotional metaphors that idea that all that suppression you know in the forest it results in all that material building up. So if we don't have little fires regularly, you have all the material to create big fires that are hotter, that are uh, that do more damage. And and recently, um, I've read um, Jean Vian, John Vian's, um Fire Weather, and he speaks about our cities being kindling, better kindling for fires than than than, than wood and trees, because fires actually feed on the gas. And our whole cities and houses are emitting gases all the time. So, um, and we, plus we have that policy of trying to repress, suppress and not live with fire. So that city in your story is so interesting and continues to 
change in terms of what it could mean in relationship to fire um, built up because fire burnt it all down, like mm-hmm. probably all of our cities, and also likely to be the cause of more different kinds of fire. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's a gorgeous story. <laughs> Isn't I mean, it just... Um... You reminded me so much of this moment where um, when you talk about the gas, sorry, I'm... I'm um, is it okay, Alice, if I try to make? Well, go right point? ahead. I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I'm just bubbling over in the background here. I'm just trying to find it. Um, There's just something you said, Michelle, that like sparked something. Okay. Uh, two, two, two things that were really sparked by that. If, uh, if nature didn't know the things that you that that we're describing here, we wouldn't have trees that literally need fire to form you know like yeah. they, the, the seeds will not open without the fire and yeah. so you know and th- and these are some of the oldest trees at all you know they're definitely some of the oldest living trees on the planet mm-hmm. and so i find i found that like i, I love that, no- that i love that knowing that that gets carried there um and i'm and if if i can have the like sort of um the silliness of, of reading two of my own, uh, of like remembering two lines of poetry that came to me at, at one point. Um, I'll, I'll choose one for now because I think the other one I'll, I'll keep for, for later. Um, no, I'll read them both because they fit to the moment. Um, one is if fire wasn't a lonely thing, it wouldn't be everywhere we look. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about how now this is like this, that, that scientific transition but like literally and i know other people have said this better than me um but literally everything here is like a transmutation of star matter in other words everything around you is fire including water you know there is nothing around us that is not fire and then uh the second moment um because folks were thinking about stories and and that's a, a line that that when it when I you know every so often you're writing and I think you you both for from what I've heard of both of your work you'll know this moment well it's like every so often you're writing and you write something down and you just get shook because you don't know where or who gave it to you um and so that relationship to fire but this one is one of those and it's that um we have always been the consequence of stories ah yes and I will just add to that that plants basically invented fire. Fire is something that really appears in the geological record after plant ha, plants have evolved, especially land plants um, on the on the planet. So, you know, there, it's not just a relationship that we have; it's a deep relationship that the whole vegetable world has. It's with, in- with this cycle. Interesting. Um, and uh, sorry, Michelle. Just, just related to that in my in my novel, Grandmother Begins the Story. Um, Which is a fire, by the way. I've started to read it. The way that you've got these multiple voices starting at the beginning, or like the like the there's a ferocity to the to that opening. That's that's amazing. Thank you. Yes. 
all, all the fire in that book, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, and so in it, um, um, I give non-human a voice um, alongside the humans and grassland is a voice that is waiting for and longing for the fire, the next fire. Um, and, and of course, the fire is all over the next book that I'm writing. It's in, it's literally everything now because it's so much, so central to everything um, in the way I think, yeah. Well, that's um, wonderful that it's continuing to to inspire and spark new things, Michelle. You're um again another you're you're reminding me that um that in terms of going back again and in terms of the origin, like in terms of origins, uh scientific origins, so to speak, you know, the Philippines is an archipelago, part mm -hmm. of the same that this land's mountains are you know like it's like that full when i look at it i you know hawaii here up you know and um uh and then for for land to also be born of like that liquid version of fire down yes. down in, down in yes. the earth. it's yeah it, you know for lack of a better phrase, and it'll sound corny, but that's okay. I believe in being corny. Um, <laughs> there's a phrase called badui, uh, or a word badui, which is like, it mistranslates to corny, but it's also like to just be as, um, to be as, you know, um, truly sentimental as you need to be in a moment. You know, when you think about uh, karaoke, for example, the best karaoke is full Badui. Anyway, so uh, in in the interest of being Badui, um, you know, the full circle, the to say full circle in terms of creation of land back to back to fire, and to think of like the circle of fire that, that, that moves the lands where I'm on here, all the way around to lands I'm from. And the lands. Oh yeah, to be Badui. Yeah. <laughs> not corny at all but <laughs> not corny no no if we can't feel how how on earth could we be writers um okay look I want to ask I'm watching the time a little bit I want to ask something else and it's a little bit about to me um art over history has tried to do hard things not necessarily the things that seem easy to, to people in, in any given period. And right now, it feels to me that the hard thing to do is hope. And how do we convey hope in our, in our work without maybe going too far down the sentimental line? But do you feel this kind of of tension or pressure in what you're doing at all, or is it just me? I, I um I do feel that tension, and I think that the place where I say <clears throat> the place where I want to move beyond what's sentimental is the place where a story has to carry the multiplicities. You know, that doesn't mean that uh, we render. Uh, simple uh, moments more unnecessarily complex than they are because we have things that are clearly uh, one way that we need to be clear about, you know, uh, as in right now, you know, as in like if a moment of genocide comes forward, we need to name it as a place. 
being able to see uh, what is happening. Um, and um, if I'm telling story that is going to carry hope, it needs to carry the complexities of, for lack of, for to, to, to use uh, both uh, language from both of you, right? From previous unburnings and from previous burnings, you know? Yes. And also to know, like when you described Michelle, like when you talked about how like city offers all these other ways for fire to burn, you know, if I'm going to talk about the fire of a city, I need to know that. I need to not necessarily know that before I start, but like to say, if I'm going to talk about the fire of hope, I need to understand that there's a fire in the city that also carries wood and gas and like all these other things that we, that we are, that we're having. So that is the place where I think um, it might be difficult to write um, because how do I write it and carry all that hurts? Um, and then like, you know, and then every so often I'm, I'm like, but it's so easy because the fact that anyone is alive at all, given the proclivity of humanity to destroy each other completely, like to, to like come very close to destroying each other completely and trying to, to actively erase people from every available story, um, to know that like so much stories have like, have like refused to not continue to exist. You know, the stories themselves have enacted a refusal and people have enacted that refusal for generations and generations into like, into a kind of hope, you know? Like, I would certainly agree that resilience um, is, a, is the, the resilience of the stories is absolutely important. And the, um, the and, but at the same time, acknowledging the complexity of those stories, there is nothing that, simplification isn't going to make us feel any happier in the long term but michelle were you going to say something yeah, there I, I think of it like i mean I, I always i'm always turning back especially with fire to to the teaching from the land in a sense so um i think there can be a lot of false hope out there hope that's simple and easy and will lead us in the wrong direction <laughs> and um um, I mean, that's all over a grandmother begins a story, but like if we look at the the cones that only open after a fire or the shrubs and plants that only sprout in smoke, you have to have smoke for it. So that means that your hope can't mean there's no smoke and there's no fire. Yeah. You have to avoid the fire. You have to <laughs> you have to live through it. Right. And so much hope is about so much of how we understand hope is about taking us away from the fire and the smoke. And and that's, I think, what's difficult um, for all of us. I mean, we all I mean, if a fire is coming, I, I, you know, but and and, and that, I go back to Louis Goulet's story from the, the late 1800s when he was a kid and sitting in a body of water, letting the fire jump over them, because that's how they lived on the land um, instead of today's way of life, which is just the press because we, we we can't move we can't we can't deal with that so that suppression has consequences and and that's a that's a suppression is a false hope i guess is, is how i put it in and it means that those cones and those shrubs will never never grow and um yeah yeah it, it's it's a lot more complicated <laughs> <laughs> i love that and i love that um reminding the way that and, and we're also responsible for the way we tell our stories, 
you know? And so if we, if I take a piece of a story that is an ancient story and I make it super neat and I make it super clean and I <laughs> brush away all the dirt and all the, like the smoke and all the ash, which is actually the cleanest thing. But if I, if I brush that away and then I, you know, present this neat thing, then we end up with things like, if I can, um, just to speak to like, uh, to speak to, um, uh, the South Asian subcontinent to India right now. Then you have things like Hindutva, making simple stories out of an out of making simple stories and turning them into uh, a, another form of genocide on the lands that I'm from. You know, because mm -hmm. they take that story and they go, but and then they say this is the only story. Yes. You know? So thank you so much for you know, and they do that by activating someone's version of fear and hope. They make a simple hope like you said, into an easily wielded weapon. And that yeah. is, that's a real danger. It is. Um, and it also plugs into our, I think, very Western illusion that a fire is something that can be controlled, that it is up to humans and human um, action to to suppress or or to put it out without acknowledging that fire is part of a much larger world than the merely human um, and that it needs to be integrated into a, a, a larger and and more sustainable kind of view of the world which is not easy but i do find oddly hopeful can yeah. I just, I'm, I'm, as I say, reluctant to, <laughs> to close this down at all. We could go on for quite a long time, but I would like to hear just another snippet from each of you to, to keep your voices in, in the audience's ears. So maybe, Harry, I'll, talk, I'll start with you this time. Sure. Um. I rub my eyes at the wake-up song, reach across my journal to quell the alarm. And now my phone is in my hand and my dreams begin to fade. The online <clears throat> world floods in and I'm not ready and I keep scrolling. In another version of the story, my notebooks on the stove, the only things that burn. You never know when the fire will ask you to be its home. I ask one of my demons, Hold me with the precipice of you, gathered under the constellation of migration. Make the bonfire a laughing thing, like the ritual distance that marks each step. In another version of the story, I'm a jungle and migration is the undergrowth of me. I say mobilize and it becomes a kind of prayer. I think this might be history's baseline, a mycoether, forest fires, that we're from teeming now as jungle. May the plant who needs the canopy's shade find a branch above. May the one who stretches up find itself a clearing. You and the deity of what's lost, may you be less overworked. Wonderful. That is beautiful to listen to. Thank you. Michelle, you take us out. Okay. Thank you, Hari. That was gorgeous. Smoke. 
the kind that's an indicator of a toxic environment or an emotional entanglement that will go bad. There's a spark that might jump across defenses and start the kind of fire I haven't experienced since I was a kid. There is smoke rising, the twist of white in my solar plexus. The smoke is not out there. Now this is the smell of unease in the home of the body that precedes the breaking of a memory, anticipates a blade opening in the bowels of the self. Where is the smoke coming from? Will its source come toward me head this way? Recognize the early signs of danger and learn to write your name, the name you were told was yours. Change course, avoid threat. I know how not to feed a smolder, how to get out of the way of a lick of heat. Histories blur and converge in the smoke. I'm reading an oral history-based memoir of my great-great-grandfather's brother's life growing up on the plains, and he tells of this summer where there are fires everywhere. His name is Louis Boulet. He is about nine years old, and he is traveling with his parents with an organized caravan of Métis families in search of the buffalo. His memories, in his own words, as collected by Guillaume Charette and translated by Ray Ellenwood. By the time we got to Beaver River, we were already worried about prairie fires cutting into the grazing land we needed along the way, so we veered off a little into the direction of Moose Jaw. After about a week of slow and difficult marching, the smoke rose, indicating either that the fire was no longer in the peat or that the wind had changed direction. Our guess was soon confirmed. Wonderful. That's a, a stellar way to to leave us on the on the edge at the end of the conversation. So I really want to thank both you, Michelle Porter and Harry Aluri, for being part of this conversation. Um, I wish it could go on all afternoon, but I think perhaps we better let uh, uh, let things wrap here. Thank you again, and I hope we'll have many more words to share in the months and years to come. I hope so as well. Thank you, Alice, for, for hosting us and, and moving us. I appreciate you both so much. I've uh, learned today, and I guess as an uncle would say, that's a good day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Alice. It's been so wonderful to be here, and I feel like I could sit and chat with you for <laughs> the evening telling stories. And Absolutely, we could. In the same room doing that one day. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. To, to when we're uh, sitting around a fire together, having having story with each other. I'll raise that toast too. Thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast produced by the Centre for Literatures in Canada with editing assistance from Claire Peters and music by Bruce Ziff. For more recordings featuring Canadian authors in conversation en français et en anglais, please visit the Brown Bag Lunch podcast page on our website at uab.ca slash clc. I'm Sarah Krotz. Thanks for listening.